This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of the word this morning, let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance on our study. Father, we're grateful that we can come together today to reflect upon the teaching of your word, to come to understand it more fully, that God the Holy Spirit might use it to strengthen us in your word, to strengthen us in our spiritual life, to give us that which we need in order to face and handle the various challenges and difficulties and heartaches that we face in life. Father, your word gives us hope. It gives us joy. It is the source of truth. And only on the basis of your word can we really have a genuine, full, abundant life, no matter what the circumstances might be. And Father, we pray that as we study today, we might be challenged in these areas. In Christ's name, amen. Last time we began this section in <clears throat> chapter 4, and in this section in chapter 4, we have uh, an exposition, really, or an illustration of how uh, the Word of God is to be passed on generationally. That really forms the foundation of these first uh, nine chapters, as well as most of Proverbs, that these are the Proverbs, the teaching of, of spiritual principles from father to son. And that's the ideal circumstance, is for the father to be the spiritual head of the home, it's the ideal situation for the father to take that leadership responsibility uh, in the home for the training and education of the children for spiritual things. This is done in a lot of different ways. This can be done in an, a more formal way where on a weekly basis or nightly basis, the reading of the scriptures, uh, talking about what is read, to reading Bible stories, having various uh, discussions as, as time goes by. It can also be the informal teaching, and this is something that is not done in a uh, necessarily a didactic manner uh, or a lecture format where the father is giving lectures to the kids, but just as Deuteronomy 6 portrays it, just as you go through life and circumstances and situations come up, that these are teachable moments, opportunities that God brings into the life of a family where uh, you can, uh, as your children uh, grow up, as they mature, depending on the age, where you can take advantage of those opportunities to help them understand the decision-making process that you as parents go through in order to uh, determine what would be the best course of action for the family in light of the Word of God. 
And as a family grows and as the children grows, what this does is it builds within their soul a framework for making decisions in their own life, whether it's handling finances, whether it's how we spend our time, how we evaluate our priorities, all of these things. And the earlier, ideally the earlier parents begin this in the life of their children, the easier it is. You try to, uh, if, if a person gets saved later on in life, uh, when their children are 12, 13, 14 years of age and you come in and try to suddenly overhaul everything uh, very differently from the way it was, well, you're going to get a little resistance maybe and uh, some opposition. And so that has to be handled with uh, wisdom and with uh, uh, skill. And that comes through just an understanding of the word and, and uh, it's something that may be uh, entered into uh, rather, um, rather slowly in order to lay that that particular foundation. Uh, there's not a one-size-fits-all for all of this. I used to get very frustrated when I was in seminary because you would hear from seminary professors sort of a cookie-cutter approach as to how uh, husbands ought to encourage their wives in the Word, having a daily Bible study or Bible reading. And I thought, well, you know, you, you just don't understand. There are, there are husbands that are morning people, and wives that are not mourning people. There are wives that are mourning people and husbands that are not mourning people. And, and there's all kinds of different personalities and job schedules. And, and life is much more complex than, this, than to have this sort of one-size-fits-all. And that, too, is part of the uh, development of wisdom in the life of a, of a husband and life of a man, and especially if you're a young man. Uh, it takes time to develop some of these things. That's why wisdom, as I pointed out last time, is something that is a growth process. There's uh, grades of wisdom. Uh, we don't start off being wise. Uh, there's wise, there's more wise, there's most wise. Uh, there's that which is foolish. It's a, it's a spectrum. It's not just black and white uh, like you might have between the difference between justice is injustice or sin and righteousness. Those are clear uh, opposites where you have absolute uh, black and white categories. But with wisdom, it's a process. Wisdom is a skill that is developed. And so when we begin to learn the Word of God and apply it, our skill level is pretty minimal. But that doesn't mean that uh, that we're wrong. It's just minimal. And then as we grow and mature, that develops with time, uh, time and experience. As we look at this next section in Proverbs 4, the father again challenges the son in terms of his decision-making uh, priorities and focuses his thinking upon the issues, once again, of life and death. Now, as Christians, often whenever we see the juxtaposition of life and death, what we often think of is eternal life and eternal condemnation. But within the context of the Old Testament, that's not the category that they're uh, talking about most of the time. For example, when uh, the Israelites were going into uh, entering into the land of Canaan, Moses' challenge to them was choose this day, uh, life or death. Are you going to take the path of life or the path of death? It's not eternal life uh, as much as it is are you going to make choices on a day-to-day -day basis that is going to enhance your walk with God so that you experience all of the fullness, all of the blessing that God has for you in your life, the fullness of life as God has provided for us 
And the death then is living a miserable life, a life of uh, conflict, a life of difficulty, a life of internal unhappiness and misery. We're not, I'm not talking about externals here because uh, whether you are walking with the Lord or whether you're in disobedience, we all go through times of adversity, times of difficulty, times of challenges. We face a myriad of of hardship in life because we are living in the devil's world. We're living in a corrupt world. There's opposition against us from Satan and his uh, world system, and there are problems just dealing with living in a fallen world. So the fullness of life doesn't mean a perfect life. It doesn't mean that everything's going to go well. It doesn't mean that uh, most of the time everything's going to go well. It has nothing to do with the external circumstances. It has to do with how you and I face and handle those external circumstances. Are we going to let the uh, the challenges of life run over us, or are we going to stand firm and trust in the Lord and deal with these as they come on the basis of what God's provided? So the challenge that comes across in this chapter or in this next set of verses is uh, the choice between life and death. In verse 10, we read, Hear my son and receive my sayings, and the years of life will be many. The Father is saying, If you listen to me, if you follow what I teach you, then you will have a full, rich life. You follow the wisdom of the instruction in verse 13, and you keep hold of that, then that is your life at the end of verse uh, verse 13. And if not, and you follow the path of the wicked, verse 19, it's a way of darkness in which there is much stumbling. And so this is the contrast between life and death. As I pointed out in the past, these are a series of, of uh, sort of lectures or teaching uh, segments from the Father to the Son. Uh, verses 1 through 9 covered the fifth lesson and the sixth lesson is verses 10 to 19 it's a the challenge is on how to live your life well to seize life and to stay um, stay off of the human viewpoint road and stay on the road of divine viewpoint and the word of god as i pointed out last time we have five five divine institutions now, different people number them in different ways. I did have one question last week from someone who said, wait a minute, when did, when did we get five? What happened to four? The reason that I and others uh, make a division, some of you uh, were taught that nationalism was the fourth divine institution. Human government is installed or instituted by God with the, with the Noahic Covenant, which occurred some 300 years before the Tower of Babel. At the Tower of Babel, God uh, scattered the nations. That's when, uh, up until that time, you don't have nations. The uh, scattering of languages is what produced nations. So there's a 300-year gap when you had government. Somebody once said, well, how do you have government without a nation? Well, think about it. You have government within a small clan. You have government within a small village. You can have government within a tribe. But these are not nations. Uh, so there's a difference there. You can have local municipality government. Uh, there's government at all different levels, but government doesn't mean um, uh, 
a national uh, a national distinctions. So the fifth category is uh, national uh, diversity. In each one of these, there's an authority. What happened? Where we get into trouble is when we start violating those authorities, and the authority in one area. Uh, of divine institution begins to usurp responsibility in another area. For example, when um, a government usurps God's responsibility, then you have uh, tyranny that borders on and in some cases uh, actually tries to uh, uh, tries to present itself as a deified nation. You had this in the in the uh, ancient world with Egypt and with Rome and with uh, uh, various Mesopotamian powers where they tried to portray the uh, the king or the pharaoh or the Caesar as divine or the son of the divine. Uh, that is That destroys freedom when the uh, authority of, of uh, divine institution number four which is government seeks to usurp the authority of divine institution number one. It also happens with uh, in terms of family. Parents are the uh, authority designated by God within the family, not the government. But today we see the government constantly encroaching upon parental authority, and this destroys freedom. Because the, uh, the, when you get a government that is further and further uh, divorced from a Judeo-Christian heritage based upon the Word of God, then they don't understand these principles anymore, and they do begin to function more and more as if they are uh, divine, as if they are the source of utopia, uh, where they are the source of, uh, of, of, he- of all health and all prosperity, and they can solve all problems. What happens today in our world is in the context of the growth of the modern progressivist philosophy, which some people have called liberalism, but a better, a little more technical term is progressivism, is that this grew out of atheistic uh, worldviews in the late 19th century where uh, the the hope, the goal was to establish some sort of utopic society. Marxism is the uh, mo- one of the most extreme expressions of that kind of uh, utopic philosophy. But once you did, one thing all of these views have in common is the rejection of, of total depravity or the sinfulness of man or the corruption of man. They believe man individually is basically good and perfectible, and therefore man as a whole, as a society, is perfectible. And so the goal then of government is to perfect society and to perfect, uh, to uh, protect the citizens from uh, from all of the horrible things that can happen because they, there is this inherent belief that culture and society can be perfected. But on the other side of it, if you are coming from a biblical Judeo-Christian worldview, then you understand that the world, the universe, is under a uh, uh, sentence of corruption because of sin, that man is totally depraved, which means that his thinking is corrupt, and that man is not inherently good, although, as Jesus said to his disciples, 
you being evil. Now, he didn't say this, remember, to the Pharisees. He didn't say it to uh, the Sadducees. He said it to his disciples, to the 12. He said, y'all, you 12, my, my best guys, my choice men, you being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. And his point is that our basic nature is evil. It's that we have a sin nature, and it's, uh, it, it, its default inclination is sin and evil. But we can do good things. So just because people can do good things doesn't mean they're good. It just means they can do good things. I'm reminded uh, uh, <clears throat> the other day, I think we were up here uh, for Deacon's meeting yesterday, and we're talking about this a little bit uh, <clears throat> with the, uh, the, the, the two bo- bombers in Boston and how many people that knew them as they grew up and were interviewed said, oh, they were such nice boys. They were so good. And you have uh, others, uh, I know, uh, I've heard over the years, somebody's murdered somebody, and they interview a neighbor, and they say, oh, he's such a good person. I just can't believe it. See, the, the default position among so many in our culture is to think that people are basically, basically good. And um, but but see the reason they do evil is because they are evil. The reason you sin is because you're a sinner. The reason you do evil things is because, and the reason I do evil things is because I'm basically evil. I have a sin nature. I am corrupt at the core of my being. I don't ha- notice when we go through Proverbs here, like in Proverbs uh, uh, four ten. The the father says to his son, listen to me, hear my son, and receive my sayings. I have taught you in the ways of wisdom. I have led you in right paths. Now, when we, we see this again and again in Proverbs where the father is saying, I'm teaching you wisdom, I'm teaching you about, uh, I'm warning you against foolishness. Why? Because he also says foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. You don't have to be taught how to be foolish. You don't have to be taught how to be wicked. You don't have to get instruction in being a sinner because that's what we are. That's our default position. And so we live, though, in a world where increasingly the political philosophy that dominates Western civilization is one that assumes that the role of government is to protect society and protect people uh, and to do away with with death. Have you noticed that that the more we get away from the scripture and the certainty of eternal life and that death is just the the end of this life and the open door into our heavenly life, that, that people in government are more and more scared of death and they try to do everything they can to keep people alive longer. Of course, this is going to go by the wayside once once government takes over health care. This has happened over over a number of, number of times. They can't afford to keep everybody alive until they're 95 or 100 or 105 because it gets too expensive, and there's only limited financial resources, and so uh, that that then becomes uh, becomes a problem. But what we have is is the the role of government is to protect people to make them healthy, not to give them an environment where they can make choices, volitional, responsible choices to live a healthy life. And government comes in and tries, just like many parents do, comes in and try try to prevent people from feeling the consequences, the negative results 
of their own bad decisions because they're trying to create this utopic society. This is uh, influenced uh, progressivism, socialism, uh, Christian socialism, Marxism, all of these things that have come along in the last 150 years are all built upon this basic assumption that man is good, man is perfectible, society is perfectible, and it's the role of society through government to bring in this utopic environment. That is in contrast to the Word of God, which teaches that we're all basically sinners. We have to learn to uh, control the desires of the sin nature. We have to learn discipline so that we can then experience a full, rich life. This is what the role of parents is, is to teach and ingrain that discipline in in their children. And so last time I also pointed out that this means that we have uh, categories where there's right and wrong, uh, that which is either either divine viewpoint, it's righteousness, or it's human viewpoint, it's wrong, related to uh, paganism. And then there's also, in like in the bottom line, I've tried to depict that, there's a scale here. Not everything is black and white. Some things are more wise. Some things are very wise, depending on our position. And I was... Uh, uh, interesting to observe that I had um, several comments this, this last week from people who said that they thought everything was either black or white. And, and yet in Scripture we see the, that there are areas that are absolute right and absolute wrong, and there are other areas where the issue isn't a choice between that which is right and that which is wrong. The choice is between that which is good and that which is better. You can think about that in the life of Mary and Martha, whose sisters, the sisters of Lazarus. Um, Mary was the one who liked to hang out at home and take care of everybody, and she was the one with uh, the gift of hospitality, and and she would fuss over everything. And then Martha was the one who would sit and listen to the Lord, and um, and so so she's the one who focused upon that, and Mary would get. Uh, would, would get distracted with these these other things in terms of taking care of every, everything at home. She made a choice for something that was good. There's nothing wrong with being uh, domestic, taking care of home, showing hospitality, cooking, cleaning, doing all of those things. But but Martha at times recognized that she didn't want to get distracted with that because it took her away from spending time with the Lord and focusing on truth. So it's not a choice between good and bad. It's a choice between good and better. And as we mature as believers, uh, often our choices are not between that which is right and that which is wrong, but that which is good, that which is really good, and that which is wise and skillful in our spiritual life. So the father tells his son, challenges him, listen, my son. And the word here in Hebrew, and just as it is in Greek, the biblical thinking on hearing isn't don't just sit and listen. Don't just sit and have your auditory nerves stimulated. We all do that. You can sit there. Sometimes I know it. Sometimes I don't. And your brain is a thousand miles away. You're thinking about uh, something else, something's going to happen this week, something that happened last week, or you've just had a a busy day or a hard week, and you can't focus on anything, and you sit down, and it just like everything goes blank. I see that a lot on Tuesday nights and Thursday nights, and I have for years. People come in, and they've been up since 5 o'clock in the morning, 
and they've been working hard all day, and the first time they sit down is 7.30 at night, and five minutes into Bible class, they're sound asleep. And I'm glad I can give them the opportunity to sleep well for an hour. But we've all done that. I have a pastor friend of mine who can do that before the prayer ends. Some people can quickly go to sleep. They're very relaxed. They have no problems, no worries. They can go to sleep anywhere. The word here for hear is not only to, to, to listen, to go through the physical action, but to do what is being said to do, to respond positively and apply and obey what is going on. Hearing without obedience it would, would never mean anything. You haven't heard if you don't obey. And so the challenge here is to the son is to listen and obey what the father says. And the parallel is uh, receive my sayings. And the word there in the Hebrew means to, is a word that means to take or to receive or to, it's a, a synonym for accepting something uh, into your life. And so making it a part of your, your thinking, a part of your, uh, the characteristics of your life. So the son is challenged to listen to the father and to do as he says. And then the result is given in the second part of the verse, and the years of your life will be many. Now, I often joke that I want the years of my life to end roughly five minutes after my memory of my life ends. Think about it. You watch somebody go through Alzheimer's for 10 years, you don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. But that's what happens is we are giving in a world now where because of the advances of medical science, we often live far beyond our memories and our understanding of what's going on around us and our, and our capabilities. Uh, so sometimes long life in terms of days, if, we, if all we're talking about is a time period, isn't a great blessing. But that's not the idea that we have in Scripture with the word life. We see it in the New Testament, Testament with the concept of eternal life, that it's not just life forever with God, but that concept of eternal life also indicates a richness and a fullness of life. Now, when you hear me say that, depending on your background, some people hear uh, wealth, riches, success, all of these things. That's not what's included in the Word. It is a fullness of life where we reach the, 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 the fulfillment that God has for us by living out His plan and purpose for our life. It doesn't have anything to do with the external circumstances of our life. Too often when people read about life and having the fullness of life, they think in terms of certain areas of success, whether it's in education, whether it's in business, whether it is in, in the accumulation of property or prestige or responsibility. But that's not the idea. That's all external circumstances. And external circumstances change. And the thing that makes the difference between somebody who has a rich life and somebody who doesn't is the mental attitude, how you handle your circumstances, how you're able to face the challenges of life uh, because you're either going to be run over by the bad things that happen in life or you're going to be able to stand up and you're going to be able to walk through the storm uh, with your head held high and recognizing that 
that God's in charge and he's got a reason and purpose for you going through those particularly uh, challenging events. There are going to be people you meet uh, that you can minister to. There will be people you meet after you've gone through it to whom you can minister, and you ha- we have to have a bigger, broader picture. So what the father is telling his sons, if you want a full life, both in terms of length and in terms of its its richness and fulfillment, then you need to uh, listen to wisdom, which is the teachings of the Word of God so that you can develop skill in its application. And then the father reflects on what he has done. He says, I have taught you in the way of wisdom. Now, some modern translations translate that guide. Guiding and leading seem to be a little more passive than what these words indicate in the Hebrew. They're much more active. The father's taking... Uh, it's, it's not just sort of a passive role of, of being an example or of giving guidance, but is giving specific disciplined instruction. Uh, the word here, uh, yara, for I have taught you in the way of wisdom, is the root word for the word Torah, which is usually we think of that as the law, but it also means the instruction of God, and it has an idea of a having a curriculum. Uh, having order, having structure, uh, having discipline. And so the father is giving, has a set uh, curriculum in his mind for where he wants to take his children from the time they're born until they leave the home. And by the way, the role of parents is to prepare children to be able to live without them by the time they're 18 years of age. And so that is your goal, is to prepare them to leave the nest, not to prepare them to be dependent upon you uh, for the rest of their life. So the idea is that the father has a set plan and purpose in taking his children through certain uh, certain structured studies, especially in context, the Word of God, but it would include everything in life, in order to prepare them to be a self-sufficient, mature adult by the time they're 18, 19 years of age. So the Father says, I have uh, taught you in the way of wisdom. Now, as we go through this section, as you read it, you might uh, circle, highlight, underline uh, the different uh, words. We have a contrast between these two words, ways and path, and they're both used of the positive way of wisdom and the negative way of, uh, of the wicked. And so the words themselves don't, don't relate to one or the other, but they are virtually synonymous, and that is the direction of something. So the first is that he's given instruction in the course of wisdom, in the direction of wisdom for one's life and how to live a wise life. And in parallel, he says, I have led you in right paths. Now, the word for way of wisdom up on the screen is the top word on the right is derek, which is the word for a road or a highway today in modern uh, modern Hebrew. It comes, it means basically the same thing in the Old Testament, a path, a road, a way, a direction, uh, the way. And then in the second line, I have led you is from the verb based on that same noun, uh, which means I have caused you to go a certain way. I have, it's a hifil stem, which is the causative stem in the Hebrew. I have caused you to progress in right paths. And the word there for paths is the word here, the noun, yashar, uh, to be level, to be straight, 
uh, just are, are lawful. Uh, it's also used in Proverbs uh, 3, 6 when talking about the fact that the Lord will, will make our way straight, will make straight our paths. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will straighten out your paths. That's that same word. So what the, the picture that we see here is if we learn wisdom, and we seek to apply wisdom, and we make what we think is the wisest decision as we go through life, and we are trusting in the Lord throughout all of this, then God is the one who straightens out the direction of our life. Uh, the result of this is then given in verse 12. When you walk, your steps will not be hindered. Why? Because you're trusting in the Lord, and he is straightening out your path, and he is removing those things that will cause you to stumble. If you lit, and, and the idea of stumbling here is not the idea of creating a stumbling block like stumbling block of sin in the New Testament. It's not the, uh, translated with the same kind of word in the uh, in the Greek. It means to uh, uh, hindering someone's steps. It means uh, in, in the cow stem to make something that is narrow or in distress. In the hip feel, it's to cause something to make it narrow or to cause distress. Your, your, so your, your steps will not uh, be blocked. You're not going to become constricted in your life because you're going to pursue a fullness of life. When you run, you will not stumble. This reminds me of Isaiah 40:31. The same ideas are there, different vocabulary, but the idea is there, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Again and again in Scripture, we have the same ideas emphasized that if we uh, walk on the basis of the Word of God, that is, if we live our life and make decisions on the basis of the values of the Word of God, then God works to straighten out our life. Does that mean that that we're not going to have adversity or failures or calamities, not at all. But it means that as those things come into our life, we know that uh, God has allowed those and brought them into our life for a purpose, and it gives us an opportunity to trust him and to be a witness to others in how you trust the Lord in the midst of those circumstances. So when we walk, our steps won't be hindered, and when you run, you will not stumble. And that has to do with stumbling as a result of weariness uh, or being being exhausted. Uh, and so there's we're strengthened by God's Word, same ideas we have in Isaiah 40, uh, 40, 31. This then is reinforces concept of growing tired and weary is then uh, picked up a little bit in the next verse under the idea of the Hebrew word in that phrase, do not let go. The challenge here is to hold fast to the teaching of God's word. Don't let go. Actually, it means don't give up, don't get discouraged, don't give up in the process of spiritual growth. Uh, that's the idea there in don't let go. The first word, take firm hold, is the Hebrew word chazak, which means to grab onto something and hold onto it uh, tightly, to hold onto it strongly. Don't let go. Gra- There's a sense of, 
of desperation there. You know that if you let go, then all is lost, so you're not going to release it. Uh, Take firm hold of instruction. This is a word we've seen many times. In Proverbs, it is uh, moser, which means uh, disciplined instruction. Once again, we, we get this reminder that the father has thought out ahead of time the curriculum he wants his children to go through so that when they come out at the other end, when they are uh, a young adult, they are self-sufficient. He is, he's taking them through a course of training that is organized and thought out so that they are prepared to be uh, uh, adults. They're prepared spiritually to face the challenges of life when they become an adult. There's no guarantees, though. Uh, there is a general proverbial truth that you train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he won't depart from it. But children have volition. And when children grow up in a pagan culture, no matter how much you may uh, seek to shelter them from that pagan culture, it's amazing how kids just seem to, to absorb it from the air around them, and uh, they pick it up. And then when they become a young adult, uh, they often try to um, try to see if uh, what they believe, and they go out on their own, and they go sow their wild oats, as it were. Some of them never go through a period of that that's not very extreme. Others never seem to come back from that. Some are like the prodigal son. They go through some years of uh, self-induced mi- misery and self-destruction before they come back. Uh, others may not come back. That's rare. That's why it's a proverb. It's not a promise. A promise is if you train up a child in the way he will go, uh, then he never, ever would, no child, there would be no exception. But a proverb is just simply stating general truths that are, that if you teach them and train them in the way they should go most of the time, that even though they depart from it for a while, they will return. That's why it's the book of Proverbs, not the book of promises. So the instruction is a guided, disciplined instruction. And when we learn, we have to go through a guided, guided path of instruction. That's why it's important in Bible class that we have a pastor who teaches the word and takes us through the word in a regular manner, not like some, uh, some churches and s- some uh, Sunday school programs where people all, all come together, sit around, and the, and the Sunday school teacher says, well, so and so, what do you think of this lesson? What do you think of this passage? We've all been in things like that, and nobody knows, nobody read it. Half the class are visitors and weren't there the last week, or they come only once a month. And nobody has ever taken the time to study the Word. So what we need to have are are men who are trained in the Word of God, who will guide and instruct the congregation uh, from from the Word so that they get the benefit of it. It's not something that just pops into their head either. It is, um, it's something that is the result of study. You have to understand uh, a lot of different things. You have to understand the original languages, hopefully, and you have to understand theology. You have to understand the Word of God as a whole as well as uh, in terms of its parts. And then there's that, that disciplined instruction. But it's disciplined not only part of the instructor but also on the part of the student. You have to have the discipline in your life 
to go through the course of study to learn the Word of God, to learn doctrine so that you can have wisdom in your life. It's not something that's just going to happen. It won't happen if you just show up once a week or twice a week, even three times a week. It's not going to do it. It has to be a daily practice in your life. And today we live in a world where there's so much available to us. You can uh, go online to uh, Dean Bible Ministries and listen to 15 years worth of teaching there. There's hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands of hours of solid doctrinal instruction by many other pastors out there on the internet uh, that are very, very good. And so there, there's, the problem isn't a lack of knowledge. The problem we have today is there's so much that people just don't... Uh, understand how desperately they need it. When we have a, uh, a, a lot of something, we often just take it for granted. And I wouldn't be a bit surprised if a day doesn't come when the Lord brings discipline on this nation because they have failed the test of prosperity and Bible doctrine, and it will be hard to get good Bible teaching. So we're to take firm hold of, <clears throat> of instruction and then the phrase, do not let go. This is the uh, hifil imperative of rafa, which means to, has the idea of sinking down, dropping something, becoming disheartened or discouraged. In other words, take full, uh, firm hold or, or strongly grasp disciplined instruction and don't give up. Don't let go. Don't become discouraged. Don't get weary. Uh, stick with it. Keep her. And the word there is to guard it, for she, that is, this instruction, is your life. It's the source of life. Then in contrast to following the instruction of the Father, we have the warning against uh, following the natural inclinations of, of the sin nature. Notice there's nothing here about listening to instruction. It's assumed that uh, without instruction, this is the way a person will go. And I want you to notice there's a progression here, much like we have in Psalm 1. Don't enter the path, don't walk in the way, and then don't pass on. Literally, it's not travel, it has that idea. So it's entering, walking, and then traveling in a certain direction. So it's a progression from just a, a, a sitting uh, position to uh, fully entering into something. So the prohibition is don't enter into the path of the wicked. The term wicked is a general term used in the Old Testament to describe the whole range of, of, of the sin nature and of sins. It's used uh, 266 times, mostly in wisdom literature, but it's used elsewhere as well, and it's used as a synonym for almost every word uh, for sin, evil, and iniquity uh, in the Hebrew. So it's a general term that covers the whole realm of the activity of the sin nature. Don't enter, don't make the choice to even walk through the doorway of that path. And then further, don't walk down the path in the way or the direction of evil. In fact, the uh, command is to avoid it, to avoid it, to ignore it, to let it go. Uh, avoid it. Don't travel on it. Don't even don't travel on it, which uh, travel has the idea of passing on down. You're not going to go through the door. You're not going to stand in the entryway. You're not going to go in a little bit. You're not even going to walk very far down it. You just turn away from it completely. 
and then pass on. The word there for don't travel on it and passing on is the same word in the Hebrew, which means to pass through, to uh, uh, go in a certain direction. It can mean to travel as they translated it in the first part of 415, and it has this idea of an extended uh, extended stay. And then the reason for this command, this prohibition, is given in the next verse, and, it, and the next two verses expresses the core nature of the person who is wicked, uh, that their nature is such that this wickedness has taken control of their soul. They have, they have, um, these are the ones that have entered the path. They're walking down the path and they have given their life now to the path. It's a progression. It doesn't happen all at once. We dabble in sin a little bit. Then we get comfortable with it. At first we might have been shocked. Then we dabble in it and then we're doing it all the time. Next thing you know, it's part of our life. That's the idea here. Once it takes over a person's life, um, they're characterized this way in verse 16. For they do not sleep unless they have done evil. Their, their, their whole being is caught up with living in wickedness. So they can't even uh, rest or relax until something wicked has been done. Uh, they do not sleep unless they've done evil, and their sleep is taken away unless they make someone fall. So it, it, the second part of the verse uh, extends the idea from simply doing evil to getting somebody else involved in doing evil. They want a companion uh, in their evil, and so they want to make someone uh, someone fall. And here we have the word uh, kashal in the Hebrew, which means to stumble, to stagger from weakness or weariness. Remember, in contrast, we were to take firm hold of of uh, instruction and not to grow weary. Uh, here, in terms of the um, uh, the person who's following the path of wickedness. They, they fall from uh, weariness, and they're enticed in that from the wicked person. Then they are described, uh, the wicked are described further as having their, having totally assimilated evil uh, within their life. Uh, verse 17 uses a picturesque metaphor of eating and drinking, which is often used in Scripture in order to express the fact that someone has taken, just as we eat food, and it enters into our body and is uh, um, converted into energy and the nutrients go throughout all of our body and it becomes part and parcel of our nature. So evil is pictured this way as something that is totally has entered into the uh, total uh, experience of the wicked person, and they have made it uh, part of their own. So in uh, the general uh, poetic expression here of eating and drinking, this covers both uh, all the aspects of, of taking something in, and it marks an intimate and uh, real partaking of, the, uh, of, of everything that wickedness and violence would bring. Uh, bread and wine, it's not talking about eating wicked bread or violent wine, it's that the bread it's the the bread related to wickedness the wickedness then is describing the 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 nutrients that are absorbed in this bread and the wine is is characterized by violence and so it is the wickedness and the violence that is coming into the life of the person it's the same word used here for wickedness that's used for the wicked in verse uh, 14 and also in verse uh, verse 19 Often we have um, 
we have verses in Scripture that express this idea of eating and drinking as taking something into into someone's life. For example, in Jeremiah fifteen sixteen, uh, Jeremiah is reflecting upon the words that God has revealed to him. Says, "I found your words and I ate them," meaning that he believed them and made them part of his life. Uh, God uses the same metaphor in Ezekiel three one and says, "Son of man." Eat this roll and go speak into the house of Israel. In other words, assimilate what I have revealed to you, and then on that basis go and speak uh, to the Israelites what I have revealed to you. Uh, it's used in the New Testament uh, in John six fifty one, where Jesus said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the idea is that taking in uh, Christ, and the, it's a metaphor for belief, as we'll see in just a minute. The uh, the parallel in Proverbs four seventeen says, "Drinking the wine of violence." The word for violence there is the Hebrew word Hamas. This isn't where we get the word for the uh, party over in Israel, the Hamas party. Okay, that's an uh, an Arabic acronym uh, for the Islamic resistance movement. This just happens to be uh, a um, sort of an ironic uh, <clears throat> similarity here that the Hebrew word for violence is Hamas. And uh, it just means that, that, that sin leads to some sort of violence, whether it's in the soul or outside, uh, outside of the soul. What happens when we start down this process? You just get a little bit, you get used to it, you want more and you want more until this sin dominates, uh, dominates your thinking. Alexander Pope expressed it in a couplet in this way. He said, Vice is a monster of so frightful mien as to be hated needs but to be seen, but seen too oft, too familiar that face, we must first endure, then pity, then embrace. We get familiar with sin, we get comfortable with sin, and then we embrace the sin. Now, just one more note on this this metaphor of eating and drinking. This often confuses people. For example, as uh, the verse I quoted a minute ago in John six fifty one, uh, people say, "Well, what does Jesus mean when he talks about eating this bread, meaning himself?" Later on, he says, "Eating the blood, eating his flesh, drinking his blood," and that has been used to justify the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation in the Mass. But if we look at John six, we see that. The idea of eating and drinking is just a picturesque way of talking about believing. Uh, in John 6, 40 and 47, notice this is all the same discussion, all the same discourse called the Bread of Life Discourse. Uh, Jesus says in John six forty, This is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. In John 6:53, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. See, eating the flesh, drinking the blood is just a metaphor for talking about belief. Belief is accepting something as your own, accepting it as true. John 6:47, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. 
John 6.54 uses the eating and drinking uh, metaphor, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Often metaphors are further explained when we just look at the passage and come to understand some of the parallel, uh, parallel terms. The result of taking in the word of God and following the path of wisdom is that it illuminates the path around us. It illuminates our lives and illuminates the lives of those around us. Verse 18 says, but the path of the just is like the, now the New King James translated shining sun, but the Hebrew word is simply bright light. The path of the just is like a bright light that shines ever brighter. It increases. See, that's that idea of wisdom on a spectrum. We get As we grow and mature, we make wiser and wiser decisions. It's, it's a spectrum. So it's a light that shines brighter uh, unto the perfect day. Now, that's an unusual phrase in the Hebrew. I did some study on it and uh, couldn't find any, any similar usage of the term, but it seems to have the idea until we stand before uh, God's uh, judgment seat, until this life is over. And so the path of the just continues to illuminate those around them until their life comes to an end. This is a thought that is expressed by the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. This is a great verse for us to learn for today. We live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, but we need to grow and mature so that we can shine as lights in the world. And then verse 16 tells us how we do that. How do you shine as a light in the world? By holding fast. See, it's an instrumental concept there in the uh, participle. By holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Same idea. But in contrast to the illuminating walk of the uh, wise believer, we have the uh, darkened walk of the disobedient believer or the unbeliever. The way of the wicked is like darkness. This The word here is a thick darkness such as uh, uh, was descended upon Egypt as part of the ten plagues. Uh, same word is used here in the Hebrew. It's a thick darkness that in which there's no uh, no uh, discernment of anything. Uh, the way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. Same word we have that we found earlier in um, verse 16. They want to make others stumble. And so the choice is ours. This is what this section is all about. Do we want to choose life or do we want to choose death? Our life is the result of the decisions that we make. You and I are the result of our decisions. And the choice is, are we going to choose life or are we going to choose death? Are we going to choose to follow the path of wisdom or are we going to choose to follow the path of wickedness? With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word uh, this morning, to reflect upon these things, to realize that uh, the importance of our choices, our individual responsibilities, that it's, uh, we may face deficits in life due to our background, education, uh, intelligence, 
uh, economic situation. But the reality is that the only thing that matters is the decisions we make in relation to your word. And that in relation to your word, we can have a life that is a full life, but it depends upon our choice of learning your word and executing wise decisions. If we choose the other path, then we end up in increasing darkness and we stumble and our life becomes a chaotic mess. Now, of course, this all depends ultimately on a prior important decision. There may be some here who don't know about that decision and have never made that, and that is simply the, the issue of Jesus Christ, believing upon him for salvation. Scripture teaches that that is the starting point of our spiritual life. For when we believe in Jesus Christ, at that instant we become regenerate. We become a new creature in Christ. We're given a new life, and we have to nourish that life, and we have to grow and mature as believers. Father, if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their eternal life or uncertain of their eternal destiny, we pray that you would take the, that they would take this opportunity to make that uh, certain. And all that is needed is to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Father, we uh, pray for all of us that we would uh, take the uh, challenges of this passage to heart and that we would make the right choices and press on towards spiritual maturity living wisely that we may shine forth as bright lights in the midst of the wicked and perverse generation around us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.